Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm thrilled to have you with me. In fact, my favorite thing so far has been reconnecting with so many of you, old students, old friends, old colleagues. Uh, the opportunity to study the gospel together has been a great blessing over the years, and to be able to do it again this way, I hope blesses you as much as reconnecting has blessed me. I'm going to try something a little new today. Uh, we've done two episodes so far, uh, Jacob chapter 7 and Jacob chapter 4. We're going to use those as sandwich points and uh, fill in the middle today with Jacob chapter 5 and chapter 6. Uh, we've used PowerPoints in the, in the previous two videos. Today I'm just going to try to teach you out of the scriptures. As you've probably noticed, I'm not very comfortable behind a camera. Uh, I joke that the only reason I stayed in my own wedding pictures was it would make my wife look that much better just by comparison. So uh, as one who has a face for radio and probably a voice for silent movies, uh, I'm trying to get past that sense of self-consciousness and, and just teach. Uh, many of you have given me some great feedback. You, it seems that you love the content and have got some great ideas on how to make it feel a little bit more natural. Uh, shout out to Linda. Great idea to post pictures of students right behind the screen. Uh, so I'm looking at many of you right now uh, as I look past the camera uh, and feeling a little bit more like we're in a classroom together, or in this case, sitting across the table from each other in an office to talk about things that really matter. Uh, that does already make me feel more comfortable. So thank you for that. Uh, I've had some great feedback also on uh, ways to improve the technology. That's definitely a weak point of mine. Uh, the I feel a lot like Nephi trying to build Solomon's temple. Uh, I know the design. I know what it's supposed to look like. I would dream of it being uh, up to specs, and yet I just don't have the same kinds of materials that Solomon used. This is a I would say this is a low-budget channel, but it's really a no-budget channel. So uh, we'll grow, and uh, with your feedback and comments of letting me know thing, things that you'd love to see. Some have asked for podcast type of just audio. Uh, knowing my face, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, some of you want it more on Facebook as well as on YouTube. I'm, I'm thrilled with the interest, and I really am open to meet your needs. So let me know what they are. Uh, we'll be expanding beyond. This is so far we've done things that are a little bit more come follow me esque as we're going through Jacob uh, to try to help you with your own personal study each week. Uh, I'd love to continue that. Uh, there's so much power in the Book of Mormon to, to build and fortify faith and to keep us unshaken, uh, particularly this week as we've studied the end of the Book of Jacob. Uh, that'll be the same today as we tackle the big, the big chapter, chapter 5. Uh, but I also want to include some other things that I've been teaching elsewhere about navigating faith crisis more specifically, uh, how to build, uh, well, just how to deal with the challenges of faith that, that seem to shake us so often. Anyway, uh, I want to spend our, our day today in Jacob chapter 5 and chapter 6. If you are the type of person that is a chapter-a-day reader, today is not your favorite day. Uh, you'd probably prefer the Psalms or something, where you got a couple of verses, or, or Obadiah, or things like that. When you hit Jacob 5, it's, it's the longest book, in, it's the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon. 77 verses. And the irony of it is, uh, it came right after Jacob admits at the beginning of chapter 4, that it's hard to engrave. He talks about the difficulty of engraving our words upon plates. Uh, but it says that it's worth it because it'll stick around. The fact he would say that and then spend basically a third of the book of Jacob in this one chapter uh, lets me know at least there's something to this 
that is worth the effort as far as Jacob is concerned. In fact, at the beginning of the book, in Jacob chapter 1, uh, we'll talk more about this uh, later, um, but when, when Nephi passes the baton to Jacob, he lets him know, don't waste much time on history, but focus on the things that matter most. For example, Jacob chapter 1, verse 4, if there's preaching, which is sacred, not just any old preaching, just the sacred stuff, revelation, which is great, lesser revelation, we don't have time for that, or prophesying that I should engraven the heads of them upon these plates and touch upon them as much as it were possible for Christ's sake and for the sake of our people. So the fact that a third of the pages of the book of Jacob, I did I did the count with the number of verses and it's 45% of the book of Jacob by verse count is taken up in chapter 5 and then a brief chapter in chapter 6 when Jacob uh, does some, some of his own commentary on what he's just taught us in Jacob chapter 5. Again, following Nephi's rule, don't waste space. Following his own realization that it's a pain to engrave, it's probably even worse than filming YouTube videos, uh, he still takes a third of his time, 45% of the verses, to write down prophesying which is great sacred the the heads of these things he he uses the bulk of his of his time and space on this particular allegory of the olive tree and i really believe that it's because of what nephi had told him it would be the most worth for christ's sake and for the sake of our people there's something about what jacob is doing in this chapter that is going to make a difference for us and then somehow and this one's even more interesting it's going to make a difference for jesus that this is for Christ's sake, that, J that Jacob is spending so much time on this. Now again, why why do it though? Um, there's, a, there's a fascinating statement by Joseph Smith. Uh, he talked about having a key to understanding Scripture. And when a prophet who can reveal Scripture says he has a key to understand it, my ears perk up. This is what he said about his key. He said, I inquire what was the question which drew out the answer. We must dig up the root that's an appropriate metaphor for uh, Jacob chapter 5. We must dig up the root and ascertain what it was that drew the saying out. In other words, whenever jo uh, Joseph Smith was studying parables particularly, it was like he was playing Jeopardy. He knew that this was the answer. He needed to formulate the question. Uh, so to understand what, what, what Jacob is doing in, in turning to Zenos and this allegory of the olive tree, what was the question on Jacob's mind that Jacob 5 is the answer to. Now to understand that, we need to go back to chapter 4 again. Uh, we studied this before, uh, but at the end of the chapter, Jacob says an interesting thing. He's talking about the Jews in verse 14. This is Jacob chapter 4, verse 14. And he says that the Jews were a stiff-necked people who despised the words of plainness. They killed the prophets. They sought for things which they could not understand. Uh, that's a whole other level on, on faith crisis. When we're looking uh, beyond the mark, as he'll say in the same verse, when we're looking for things beyond the simple, pure truths of the gospel, uh, we can get into trouble. I've sometimes met with most of the people I meet with struggling in their faith because they don't believe enough. There are a few who struggle because they believe too much, almost. Uh, they're looking looking for things that haven't been, been revealed, that, uh, wanting to, to delve into the mysteries. That was the case uh, among the ancient Jews. And as, as Jacob explains, that blindness came from looking beyond the mark, and as a result, God took away his plainness, gave them many things which they cannot understand because they desired it, 
and because they desired it, God hath done it, that they may stumble. Now, it seems like Jacob wants to put the pen down right there and say that's the problem among the, the house of Israel that he just departed from. Uh, this, this despising plainness looking beyond the mark. But then, to me, it's this amazing moment at the end of Jacob 4. It almost seems like it's happening in real time. Verse 15, Jacob says, Now I, Jacob, am led on by the Spirit unto prophesying. So he's he recognizes one of the problems, one of the downfalls of the people from whence he came. All of a sudden, in almost mid-sentence, the Spirit leads him to prophesy. And this is his prophecy. This would be amazing to watch in general conference, by the way. Can you imagine uh, President Nelson in the midst of uh, a normal sermon, uh, all of a sudden comes off teleprompter and says, right now the Spirit is leading me on to prophesy. And here's what Jacob says. For I perceive by the workings of the Spirit which is in me. So again, this is happening in real time. That by the stumbling of the Jews, so I recognize this problem in them, and because I recognize that this is a, a normal challenge among the house of Israel, uh, in the in the ancient in the ancient day, the Spirit is letting me know this is not a problem that's going to go away. This is a problem that's going to lead to greater problems, na uh, namely this: that by the stumbling of the Jews, they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have sure foundation. That's this light bulb moment for Jacob, because the challenges that they have, they're going to end up missing the boat when it sails into port. They're going to miss the Messiah when he comes. He continues, but behold, so now this, but behold, Jacob seems to be wrestling with this revelation that he just received. But behold, according to the scriptures, this stone, the one that they rejected, the one that they were supposed to build upon to have sure foundation, this stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. So again, Jacob's in this quandary now. He recognizes the, the weakness of his people. He sees what it's going to lead them into, and then all of a sudden, the scriptures let him know, but that was their only shot. The Spirit says, they're not going to change this, and they're going to reject the Messiah when he comes. They're going to, they're not going to build upon the rock. But according to the scriptures, his next piece of the puzzle, that rock's the only shot they have. That's the only place to build a, a sure foundation. So then in verse 17, Jacob comes away with the question that Jacob 5 is going to answer. Now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, which is what the Spirit told them, can ever build upon it that, they may be, that it may become the head of their corner, which is what the Scriptures told them? In other words, the Spirit is telling me one thing. Well, actually, first of all, my understanding of this group of people, my perception, my experience is telling me one thing. Then the Spirit is telling me another thing based on that. And then the Scriptures seem to be, not contradicting, but, but informing the discussion. And now what do I, what, what's going to happen to them? How are they ever going to build, rebuild, upon a sure foundation when they rejected that one? How will it ever become the head of the corner when that was their one only hope and they miss it? Verse 18, he then says, Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you. That's the plan for Jacob 5. He knows Zenos's allegory is the answer to that question. But he also admits, I will unfold this mystery if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the Spirit 
and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. It almost seems that he's seen in his own people the same problems that he recognized among the the ancient house of Israel. Uh, Back in chapter 2, he's crying repentance as the Nephite men are looking beyond the mark in their scripture reading to try to justify immoralities. And so here's this this concern, this over-anxiety that the prophet has for his people. And the hope that his people, the, the hope he has for his people is the same hope he has for the larger house of Israel. And it's going to be conveyed and explained in the allegory of the olive tree. That's the mystery he's going to unfold. He just hopes that he can make it through it. This is That's the passion that this prophet has for his people. Uh, I want to say this too. This question, the, the, the key that Joseph Smith is giving us, the, the root to dig up, this is a question that is not just institutional. How will the house of Israel that rejected Jesus ever get a second chance to build upon him? This is a very personal one. And I think the power of the Book of Mormon, as Jacob says, as Nephi says, as so many prophets do, is when we liken them unto ourselves. That's when it becomes for our profit and for our learning. So if you want to profit from Jacob 5, if you want to learn from it, then don't stay historical and only talk about the ancient house of Israel and their their second chance having missed their only chance. Uh, think about yourself and the chances you've missed. The, the, the stones that were supposed to be part of your foundation that didn't end up being that. And is there ever another chance to do so? I, I had an amazing conversation with an amazing young man who had an, a prophetic patriarchal blessing that promised him incredible things that didn't come to pass because for about the 10 years following that blessing, he was nowhere near the source of those promises. Uh, we spent a good hour or two talking about it and, and just the devastation he felt of having missed the blessings that were held in store for him because he'd left God and left the gospel for that time. The amazing thing was he was back. And so to, to watch God pick up the pieces uh, and to help him move forward from where he began, Jacob 5 is his chapter. It's your chapter. Uh, I know of a man who uh, was unfaithful to his wife and lost his family over it, ended up marrying the person that he was unfaithful with, and tried to remain a part of his children and his grandchildren's lives. Uh, it was it was ugly, and it ended ugly for him and for that spouse uh, with whom he'd been unfaithful. He hit rock bottom and eventually kind of hat in hand, tail between his legs, returned to his first wife. Uh, and she amazingly gave him another chance. They were remarried. Uh, imagine that, to, to give someone a second chance who had been unfaithful to you, divorced you, abandoned you. It's the story of Hosea in the Old Testament all over again. Uh, I, I know that man. He's my, he's, a, he's my wife's grandfather. And to see the saintliness of her grandmother, to give him a chance, you rejected the one foundation upon which you could have built. But let's rebuild. And they did. Uh, or the story of a priesthood leader who was excommunicated because of major mistakes that he made. And it was very public because of his position in the church. And yet he didn't move. He didn't run away. He stayed. His family stayed. 
everyone stayed with him, stayed by him, and he fought through the repentance process and returned to full activity and rebaptism in the church. Uh, people rebuild on foundations that they abandon. Now, that was a, a former state president of mine, whom I love. And to, to see people that have hope and make those changes. Uh, I know of a woman who struggled until she hit rock bottom, um, which is actually an amazing place to be. I realized that once you hit rock bottom, you're finally back in contact with the rock that's always been beneath you, bearing you up. And uh, she had asked to have her name removed from the records of the church because she felt that nothing was true and that God wasn't there. And after she hit rock bottom, she asked the sister missionaries to just start over with her. Can you teach me again? And they did. And she was rebaptized uh, by her own return missionary son. Uh, I know her too. That's my mother-in-law. It's. I hope it's okay to share these personal stories. It's. It's close to home. To see people reject sure foundations, and then wonder how can I ever build? Will I ever get another chance when that was my only chance? There's never only chances. There's. There's only Jesus, but he keeps giving us chances. And that's the story, in a nutshell, of Jacob chapter 5. That's the answer to Jacob's question. For the house of Israel, for his people, for you, for me, our missed opportunities are not forever missed. They're not permanent problems. If we'll simply rebuild on the foundation that is still sure and still waiting for us to build upon it. Uh, Forgive me for my over-anxiety. Um, these are things that really matter. Now, to get to Jacob chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Behold, my brethren, do you not remember to have read the words of the prophet Zenos, which he spake unto the house of Israel? Again, one of the I'm, I'm grateful that chapters have chapter headings. I'm grateful that we break it up. It helps us in our scripture study. I can say Jacob chapter 5, verse 1, and we can read it together instead of, as the Book of Mormon was originally written uh, without, with long, long, long chapters without versification, uh, the same was true of the ancient Bible. Uh, it's such a blessing to have chapter breaks and verse verse numbers and so on. But it's a real bummer when I, when we get into the habit of finishing a chapter, going to bed, waking up, passing through the scripture, the veil, forgetting everything we read the day the day before, and then starting anew with Jacob chapter five. And going, oh, okay, uh, do you not remember the words that the prophet Zenos spake? Uh, forget, you know, erase the chapter heading. Go straight from the end of 4 into the beginning of 5, and we'll see this is what Jacob is trying to, to, to teach us in answer to that question. Now, if he's about to quote the prophet Zenos, uh, we wonder, who is this Zenos? Uh, there's power in knowing who it is that is teaching us. And... We don't know anything from the prophet Zenos uh, from the Bible. He would have been on the brass plates. Uh, it would have been, in fact, there's a chapter in 1 Nephi 19 where Nephi pieces together all these details about Jesus Christ from Zenos, from Zenic, from Nahum. It's like he's, he's finding these people who gave us clues and, and, and reassembling the puzzle to get a fuller picture of what Jesus Christ's ministry will be like. That's actually, I think, the first place that you meet Zenos in the Book of Mormon. Uh, it, he, he's cut... He comes up several times throughout the book. This is his magnum opus. But as I've uh, 
try to pay attention who Zenos was to, to get a, a sense of who's teaching me in this chapter. Uh, notice a few of these details. When Nephi quotes him in 1 Nephi chapter 19, this is 10 through 16, we get this big chunk that comes straight from the prophet Zenos. And in it, he talks, he keeps repeating uh, that uh, those on the isles of the sea, that seems to be a focal point for Zenos. He's talking about the signs of Christ's death, and he talks, and he says that, that the darkness and destruction that will accompany Christ's death would be a sign for those who should inhabit the isles of the sea, especially those who are of the house of Israel. The same section, he promises that the Lord would visit all the house of Israel at that day. Some would get it the nice way, through his voice. Others would get it a little heart stronger way, through thunderings and lightnings. You already get a sense that Zenos is seeing there are different approaches that the Lord uses to try to reach his people. Never giving up on them. Uh, but, you know, do, do you use the, the gentle uh, music to wake you up in the morning or the strong alarm? Uh, the Lord's going to try to do both to wake us up. Also in that chapter, 1 Nephi 19, uh, Zenos says that when the, the, the house of Israel will reject the Messiah and be scattered, which is what uh, Jacob is realizing at the end of chapter 4. And then he says that when they turn to the Lord, God will remember the covenants which he made to their fathers. Then he will remember the isles of the sea. That same, that's the third time he's, he's, he's using that phrase. Yea, all the people who are of the house of Israel will I gather in. First thing you need to know about the prophet Zenos, he is a prophet of the gathering. He recognizes that scattering will occur, but that gathering is part of the covenant of God. That will be a huge factor in Jacob chapter 5. Fast forward 500 years, and you have Alma in the book of Alma quoting Zenos as well. Uh, to the apostate uh, Zoramite poor, the ones that were rejected from their synagogues, he quotes Zenos, and he says, Don't you remember what he taught? That God is accessible to you in the wilderness, in your fields, in the house, in the closet, in the congregations. Even when you're cast out, God is still available to you. Again, important detail that informs what we're going to learn from him in Jacob chapter 5. Zenos seems to be a prophet of the outcast. He seems to be a prophet of the Isles of the Sea. He's a prophet who, who fully understands the, the, the scattering of Israel and wants them to know that no matter where you happen to be, as far away from Jerusalem, as far away from the house of God as you're feeling, you're still not cut off from the presence of God. You can pray in the wilderness. You can pray in the field. You can pray in the closet. It doesn't just have to be in the congregation. Even when you're cast out, he's there for you. Now in that same chapter, Alma goes on and he says, You must believe what Zenos said, for behold, he said, Thou hast turned away thy judgments because of thy son. So not only was Zenos a prophet of the outcasts, not only was he a prophet of, of the Isles of the Sea, he was a prophet of the Son of God, the condescending Christ, one who would come down to be close to humanity, and one who was still the Son of God and therefore was tied to divinity. Uh, that's going to be important as well, because the Book of Mormon that focuses on the scattering and gathering of Israel, in my opinion, more than any other theme, the great blessing of the Book of Mormon is that it it clarifies and emphasizes the role of Jesus Christ in the gathering of Israel. And so all of these, these themes that are close to the heart of the prophet Zenos 
are going to be woven together in this magnificent tapestry, which is his allegory of the olive tree. Uh, just a few last places where he's mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Uh, in Helaman chapter 15, Samuel the Lamanite quotes Zenos, and he says that Zenos prophesied of the restoration of our brethren, the Lamanites, again to the knowledge of the truth. Again, Lamanites, people that feel scattered or cut off from the, from the main trunk of the house of Israel but they will be re re uh, restored. Therefore, Zenos is a prophet of the restoration for the outcast. Uh, 3 Nephi 10, uh, as the destruction is taking place before the coming of Christ in chapter 11, Zenos is quoted there saying that Zenos testified particularly concerning us who are a remnant of their seed. Anytime a remnant is mentioned, uh, there's this this remnant shall return. That's Sheer Yashu, one of the children of Isaiah, right? Uh, this is a branch that is being broken off, which is something that Lehi talked about uh, and that, that uh, Joseph of, of Egypt talked about and uh, that Lehi quotes in 2 in, uh, Nephi chapter 3. Anyway, Zenos was a prophet of the broken branch, and that's what we're going to see in this chapter particularly. Last place, and perhaps the the apex of Zenos's ministry, Helaman chapter 8, verse 19, Nephi tells us that the prophet Zenos did testify boldly for the which he was slain. The things that Zenos taught meant so much to him that he was willing to give his life for it. He, here is a martyr to the faith, the faith of his faith in the Son of God, the condescending Christ, his faith in the promises of the Messiah to gather Israel home, uh, the promises that the outcasts still have access to the throne of God wherever they happen to be. He, he, here's, he's our teacher for the day. And like I said, all of those, those principles, all of those, oh, I'll put it this way, I taught a class once on the living prophets and, and asked my students to spend at least part of every day reading at least one conference talk. I said you can read anything you want from anyone you want. Uh, for some, you might want to pick a particular prophet or apostle and read everything they have. Uh, I, I've made CDs for that, for myself for that. Uh, you know, I don't know, two, two discs worth of Elder Maxwell talks, for example, and you know, 60 hours worth of just commuting with the brethren, listening to uh, one particular prophet and only a, that particular prophet. Uh, it's amazing to start to see what makes them tick spiritually uh, or scripturally to see oh i don't know uh that missionary work defines M elder president m russell ballard to the bone uh to see uh well the most obvious uh, in our in recent memories president benson's focus on the book of mormon right M many of us are old enough to remember those beautiful days uh to see president nelson for example nobody talks about the gathering of israel more than president nelson has yeah uh, i Maybe, maybe second only to Joseph Smith in this dispensation. And uh, in all dispensations, the Book of Mormon prophets testified of that all the time. And Zenos is going to be one of their, one of their go-to guys when it comes to this, uh, to this topic. By the way, it's amazing to me that spread out from 1 Nephi 19 to Jacob chapter 5 to Alma chapter 33 to Helaman 8 and 15 to 3 Nephi 10, the character of Zenos, an unknown prophet, is consistent. That amazes me. If Joseph Smith is making up the Book of Mormon off the cuff, uh, if he is a, a, a mere genius rather than a true prophet, 
uh, I, I'm shocked that this no-namer, this minor character, would have a consistent character throughout the Book of Mormon as his words are scattered across close to 500 pages. Uh, it's amazing to me. I, I testify the Book of Mormon is true. Joseph Smith did not write this. This is not made up. This is not fan fiction. Uh, it's amazing to me, uh, even this tiny detail of, of who Zenos is and how it all comes together in, in one consistent character. Anyway, uh, let's dive in. Um, verse, chapter fi uh, 5, verse 3, the story really begins, the allegory. For behold, thus saith the Lord, I will liken thee, O house of Israel, like unto a tame olive tree. First thing you need to know is he's not talking, he's not giving us horticultural uh, details. He's teaching us of, of the house of Israel. He uses the olive tree as his, uh, as his metaphor, his, his, main, his main metaphor here. For the house, for, the, for Israelites, the olive tree was everything. The most important and most valuable plant probably uh, in their culture. They could get food from it, the olives themselves, the wood could be useful. It's still a treasured commodity in Israel to this day. Uh, I imagine that many of you probably have uh, Israelite olive wood in your home in the form of statues or carvings or nativity sets. Uh, the five months I spent as a student studying abroad in Israel as, uh, years ago, I was always amazed to go to o uh, Omar's shop in the old city uh, to see a Palestinian Muslim uh, catering to a Latter-day Saint clientele. Uh, who else has uh, Leahonas carved out of olive wood or busts of Joseph and, and, and Emma, let alone nativity scenes and statues of the Last Supper. Uh, customer was definitely king for Omar. And beyond the wood and the food, the oil perhaps was most important for them, uh, a source of light, not only in the home, but even in the tabernacle, uh, a source of cooking, uh, the oil that was used, and perhaps even more importantly, a source of healing. Uh, as we use it in consecrated oil, it's not only used on the outside, but also on the inside. Uh, I've, I think it was Truman G. Madsen once said that olive oil is a natural antidote for more poisons than any other substance uh, that occurs naturally in nature. Uh, what a perfect symbol uh, for the healing that comes through the atonement of Christ. As we study the olive tree in this chapter, please keep Gethsemane in the back of your mind. Gethsemane itself means the olive press. And so to see those gnarled ancient trees against which Jesus leaned uh, in that all-important night of the atonement, uh, I think it's incredibly fitting to have the olive tree represent the house of Israel, uh, bearing up Jesus on that night as he was bearing them up on that night and every night since. There's another detail here that's important that comes to us through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, it's in Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses. Nephi quotes them in his large Isaiah chac uh, chapter chunk, uh, in chapter 15 of 2 Nephi, verses 1 through 7. Uh, the, the amazing thing about these seven verses is it gives us, in some ways, this these seven verses are tithing on Jacob chapter 5. Uh, because we get 77 verses of the allegory of the olive tree from Zenos. In Isaiah chapter 5, we get seven verses, so just shy of 10%. He says, My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, which means he protected it, he separated it, he set it apart, and planted it, excuse me, and gathered out the stones thereof, so he removed the obstacles to its growth. 
He planted it with the choicest vine, so it came from a proven lineage. It, he gave it the best possible chances for success. And he built a tower in the midst of it, meaning he watched over it, he guarded it. He also made a wine press therein, so he expected something from it. This was not a uh, an ornamental garden. This was meant to be productive. This was a vineyard with a wine press. Uh, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Later in that section, he says, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? And then he explains, uh, reveals the, the metaphor, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, and behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Again, what Isaiah does in seven verses, Zenos will do in 77 verses. But that is the Cliff Notes version. Uh, I also think it's beautiful that Zenos uses an olive tree, and, Z and Isaiah uses a, a vineyard. So whether you have an olive, an olive yard, is that a word? Uh, or a vineyard. It's interesting to see, for example, the the Good Samaritan to heal this man uh, that, that's wounded uh, among when he falls among thieves. He pours in oil and wine, oil from the olive tree, wine from the vineyard. Gethsemane, in many ways, is both. When it, when the, John sees Gethsemane in vision in the book of Revelation, he sees this solitary figure trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, as we sing. Uh, and it's blood that flows out from the wine press. So to think of grapes and juice and wine and blood, all of those metaphors flowing together. Again, I think it's powerful that Isaiah and Zenos come together perfectly in this, uh, or as, an, uh, as far as those who quote them, Nephi and his brother Jacob coming together on this, uh, both two ancient witnesses from the Old Testament and two more contemporary Book of Mormon witnesses, both testifying of the oil and wine that come together uh, through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, it's been said that prophecy is history in reverse. From what Zenus is giving us, this is going to be prophecy. This will be history in reverse. And there are four main periods of history that Zenus is trying to encapsulate. Old Testament times, or the period of the ancient house of Israel. Basically, New Testament times, or the dispensation of the meridian of times. The great apostasy is the third. And then finally, the restoration. He'll finish very briefly with the millennium and the final judgment. But those are the four main periods of historical time that Zenos is going to walk us through. Uh, the easiest way to, to separate them out as you're studying Jacob chapter 5 is seeing the passage of time. At the end, basically at the end of each of each period, Zenos will mention that a long time passed away, and then the Lord of the Vineyard and his servant came back into the vineyard. That those are kind of the breaking points between these four periods. Now I'm not going to spend much time on the history. I'll tell you why in a moment. But if you want to see these briefly, the first visit of the Lord of the Vineyard and his servant into the vineyard uh, to see his to check on his olive trees is from verses verses four to fourteen. And that is the ancient house of Israel, Old Testament times. In that section, you see the spiritual decay of the house of Israel. Uh, you see the scattering of Israel uh, by the Assyrians, uh, not mentioned, of course. 
Uh, not spelled out, I should say. Uh, you see that outsiders come in and mix with the house of Israel during this this period. That would be the origin of the Samaritans, as that's kind of the game plan. If you're going to conquer the world, you have to have a game plan to keep them to keep the the people occupied. And for the Assyrians, it was shuffle the deck. If you're not living in your homeland anymore, you're less likely to rise up and rebel to to conquer a land that isn't really yours. And so when they came in to take over Israel, they scattered the northern ten tribes. Uh, across the Assyrian Empire and then uprooted other conquered peoples and moved them in. They had left just enough local inhabitants to keep, uh, how do they put it, to kind of know the ways of the local deities uh, so that there wouldn't be mass massive problems there. And then those that were brought in and those that were left behind intermixed and intermarried, and those are the ancestors of the Samaritans, which is why the Jews that weren't scattered by the Assyrians uh, looked down their noses at the Samaritans as half-breeds, uh, as not full-blooded Israelites, uh, because they weren't. Anyway, that's that's uh, prophesied of, uh, hinted at, I should say, in that first visit as well. Uh, the, also, he, the Lord of the Vineyard hides the branches in the nethermost part of the vineyard. Then you get a clue that Lehi is being scattered, that he's being uh, hid in, in a, far, a far corner of the vineyard. And then that section ends with a long time passing away. Uh, historically, we call that the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testaments. And then the second visit begins, which is basically the New Testament time uh, or the dispensation of the meridian of times. That's from verses 16 to verse 28. In that section, you see good fruit growing in from grafts that had been made earlier. These are the Gentiles entering the Christian church uh, during the ministries of Peter and Paul. Now you see the scattering, the scattered ten tribes of Israel start bringing forth good fruit. I wish we knew more about about that. Uh, we see the poor spot of ground actually working out. Good fruit being brought out of it. Uh, Israel, olive trees, by the way, grow best in somewhat rocky soil. They do need water, but if they have too much of it, they can't survive. Uh, they're completely intolerant to poor drainage. So having some rocky soil, having uh, uh, some some difficulty is actually good for olive trees, a lot like Israel. It forces their roots to grow deeper. A good principle for us as well. You see the Jews struggling in their poor spot of ground in this section, but you see Lehi's group struggling as well as flourishing. You see a tree, interestingly enough, that has part tame and part wild fruit. Perfect metaphor for the, the children of Lehi as the Nephites and the Lamanites have split and there is good fruit and wild fruit on the same tree. And then that uh, section ends in verse 29 with another long time passing away. Uh, the great apostasy then unfolds, the third visit, and that's basically verses 29 to 49. All kinds of fruit cumbers the tree. You see so many different churches uh, splintering off from original New Testament Christianity, whether that's the great schism uh, between West and East, or later the uh, the Protestant Reformation with its its major offshoots and then the, the, the massive uh, denominational divisions that have resulted ever since in Protestantism. Uh, you get to a point where no fruit is good. Joseph Smith's first vision gives us good, a good insight into that when the Lord says that none, none of the churches have the fullness of the gospel. Uh, the roots are still good. It's mentioned in that chapter, in, in that section, which is really important for us to understand. Uh, we recognize the reality of the apostasy, but we need to have uh, a softer view, I think, in, in terms of the, the wonderful churches that survived uh, through the apostasy and that kept the Bible intact. Uh, 
that kept, that nourished the tree, uh, we can say. Uh, there's more that you can say of that uh, from the book of Revelation, but we don't have time. Uh, the roots are still good, uh, mentioned in, in that third that third visit. There's it, explosive church growth, too much for the established leadership to control, uh, which is where you see Paul struggling in his letters prophesying of the imminent apostasy in the same breath that he's trying to fight it uh, and clarify true Christian doctrine, uh, all because the church was growing simply too fast. Uh, again, in that chat, in that section, they're, they're described as all having become corrupt. Uh, they're scattering and grafting throughout the entire vineyard, but no good, no perfectly good fruit. The Even the Lehite tree the Lamanites have overcome the Nephites by now. The wild part of the branch of the, the wild branches have overcome the tame ones. Nevertheless, America is preserved as a promised land, and the Lord uh, is, is and says, "Lord and His servant, I should say, decide to spare it a little longer." Again, that little longer is the passage of time, which provides the transition to the fourth and final visit, which is the dispensation of the fullness of times, or in other words, the restoration period, roughly verses fifty through verse seventy-six. In that, you see the gathering of Israel, the call of missionaries and members to help prepare the world for the second coming, the, the drawing nigh of the end, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. There is uh, growth and exceedingly, uh, they grow and, ex and thrive exceedingly, and that's the end of the fourth visit. Uh, by the end of that, then, the second to last verse of the entire book, uh, or the entire chapter, is the millennium, which lasts for a long time. So again, you see the passage of time being the, the, the dividing line between uh, to set off visits. And then the last verse of this allegory describes the end of the world. Evil fruit comes again. This is where Satan is loosed for a little season. And then the good and the bad are, bad are gathered and the vineyard is burned. Uh, the final end of it all. That is the historical nutshell. Um, I'm sorry for going so fast. At the same time, uh, I'm sorry for taking so long on it. Because in many ways, that's the lesser purpose of the allegory of the olive tree. Uh, it's a lot like the book of Revelation in that uh, the prof the what it teaches us about living the gospel of Jesus Christ in any age is far more important than trying to piece together some kind of historical chronology uh, of the specific moments that will take place before the second coming. Uh, that's why the book of Revelation has been perpetually relevant uh, rather than simply uh, as a roadmap to get us to the to the final day. Same is true of the book of, J uh, of Jacob chapter 5. Uh, so let me shift gears a little bit here uh, and go from uh, from the historical to the personal. Uh, 